Welcome to Let's Talk About Life, a podcast brought to you by LifeBank, the organ, eye, and tissue recovery agency in Northeast Ohio. Donation can be a complicated subject, but it is really all about life. So spend a few minutes as we unravel the complexities of donation. So come on, let's talk about life. nothing more majestic than the sound of individuals coming together to sing as one. For our guest today, Jennifer Ackerman, singing is more than a hobby. From a very young age, choir has been a mainstay of her life, a stress reliever, and a kind of calming during the storms of life. As an employee of Oberlin College and Conservatory, She enjoys a thriving community, fellow music devotees. In 2010, however, for Jennifer, the music stopped. Hi, you're listening to episode 125 of Let's Talk About Life. I'm your host, Colleen Gerber, kidney recipient and LifeBank staff member. On what was to be a normal Sunday morning, Jennifer had a heart attack that ended up killing the left side of her heart. She was thoroughly shaken and mystified about her condition. She honestly didn't feel sick. Tired maybe, but not sick. After a year of unsuccessful treatment, specialists gave her the shocking news that she would require a left ventricle assist device or LVAD to keep her alive until a heart for transplant could be found. Jennifer, thank you so much for being willing to share your story on this episode. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. As I stated, you had a heart attack, but it was a little bit more than that. It wasn't that clear cut, was it? No. Things just did not fall into place for you from the very beginning. No, they did not. I was misdiagnosed. And by the time I got treatment for my heart attack, the left side of my heart was dead, as you had already mentioned. What were some of the things that you had to endure before your heart transplant? I had to have a a LVAD, like you said, the left ventricular assist device, which was an open heart surgery. Um, That was very invasive and very difficult to handle because you're connected to two batteries that basically pump the left side of your heart. And if they get disconnected or pulled out, you have about a minute before you could die. Oh my gosh. And you lived with that every day? Every day for a year. Oh my goodness. What was a day to day like with a nail bed? Well, when you sleep at night, you connect it to a stationary battery charger that, that pumps it for you while your batteries charge. So you get up in the morning and you connect your your portable batteries into a vest 
and then you put on the computer monitor that's in like a pouch, like a fanny bag. It weighs about five pounds. You get up, you do your normal stuff, but I can't take a shower except for once every couple days because you have to make sure it does not get wet. So you have a special bag that you have to put it in and you have to, you have to hang it on the shower curtain rod and you can only turn a certain way because you're still connected to the, to the batteries. And if it pulled the wire gets pulled out of your skin, then that's not, not, not a good situation. Oh my gosh. I never even thought about that, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult and it's very frustrating and it was very, exhausting. So I only took a shower every couple of days and was very, very careful, very careful going out in public because people don't understand. And with crowds, somebody could accidentally pull the cords because the cords are just, they're hanging out there. They're not like they're hidden a little bit, but there's still some play on them so that they, if somebody were to hook them on a cart or a hanger or something, it could get pulled. So I was very careful going out in public and in crowds. Yeah, I can understand that. And I want to add, you're a mom too, right? Yes, I have two children. I have a son who is now 23 and a daughter who is now 24. But this was 10 years ago, so well, 11 years ago now. So they were a lot younger then. So yeah, yeah. And they had to deal you. with a lot. And needed you more, right? Yes, they did. They were scared. And I was honest with them from the get-go about what was going on. So they were they were scared. They're, they still are very protective of me and make sure that I am okay because they know how close I was to dying. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's move forward to the more uh, exciting part of your story. And that is you finally did receive the call. You received notification that there was a heart that matched you and was available for transplant. What was that experience like for you? It was a bag of mixed emotions. It was my last day at the top of the transplant list. And I thought they were calling to tell me that I was going back down to status 1B instead of staying on 1A. And they called me and they said, well, we have a heart for you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? And they said yes. And I, I... immediately hung up. They told me what to do, where to go, what I had to do, how soon I had to get there. I immediately called the first person on my phone tree, which I had made plenty in advance. I made a phone tree so that one person would call the next person, would call the next person, would call the next person. Um, I got the call about one o'clock and I, I was at the hospital by three. And I think they started my transplant about six or seven. Yeah, yeah. First of all, the the phone tree is a genius idea. Any anybody on the waiting list needs to have that in place. But yes. um, there are so many. What a lot of people don't know is that there are so many tests they do prior to surgery to make sure you're ready and you know you don't have an infection going on or any anything else going on, and that you would make it through the the surgery. So. There is that long wait between the time you get to the hospital and your prep for surgery. Yes. Um, so, and that's always a little nerve wracking. It is because I've heard stories about people who get there and then the heart's no good and they have to go back home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you know anything about your heart donor? Yes, I know a lot about my heart donor. About two months after my transplant, I received a 
letter from Life Bank telling me that my my donor's family would like to be in contact with me. And I had also sent a letter to them saying I wanted to be in contact with them if they came forward. So after a little back and forth between Life Bank, we finally contacted each other. And my transplant mom's name is Debbie. And she is a wonderful, spiritual, positive influence in my life to this day. I've met her. I've spent weekends with her. We talk frequently. We talk about the transplant situation, what happened on her end compared to what happened on my end. Jeff, who is my donor, he also had a sister named Jenny, which is kind of ironic because my name is Jennifer. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And it, I have a wonderful relationship with them. What a honor for Jeff to be able to be in someone who A, takes care of and values that gift of life, and then B, um, somebody who's so talented. Now, this is my favorite part of your story, Jen. (laughs) As we said in the beginning, you just loved being in the choir. Now, you sang for many, many years, correct? Yes, I started my first choir in fourth grade. Wow. And why don't you share where you sang recently? Recently, I went to New York City and sang at Carnegie Hall with a choir from Oberlin Conservatory of Music. That is amazing to me. What was that experience like? It was such a wonderful experience. I was able to not be too nervous on stage. So when I was up there, the piece that we sang was about 45 minutes long. and It was with a full orchestra. There were 250 of us all together. But while I was on stage, I was able to keep my nerves under control so I could enjoy the moment and just look out and see all these people watching me and knowing they were being entertained and hopefully moved by the piece we sang because it was um, a religious piece. And I was able to, to enjoy it. And it had to be almost like a surreal moment because you were so close to death. And here you are singing joyously at Carnegie Hall. I mean, how much did that experience mean to you? It, it meant the world to me. When I heard they were going to Carnegie Hall, I had to try out for the choir and I was so nervous I wasn't going to make it, but I did make it. And we had tons of rehearsals and tons of dress rehearsals and we had uh, two concerts with the piece before we actually took it to Carnegie Hall. We knew it backwards and forwards. So I felt very confident with the piece. But the moment that I was up there, I was like, I shouldn't be here because I was so close to death and nobody believed me. And I had to stick up for myself and make sure that I got the treatment that I needed after the initial heart attack. Yeah, yeah. We kind of skipped over that part of the story, but you had the heart attack and called paramedics and they didn't diagnose you with a heart attack, right? Right. They told me I was having a panic attack. They did, um, took my blood pressure, listened to my heart. I have extremely low blood pressure to begin with, so my blood pressure was not elevated. Um, They listened to my heart. They checked my pulse, told me I was having a, um, told me I was having a panic attack. And that's why my chest hurt because I was hyperventilating because I had the classic symptoms of my chest hurting, my back hurting, my shoulder hurting, my arm was all tingly and I was really, really short of breath. And then you went to the ER? Yes, I went, I, I went to the ER later that day because I had a migraine and I told them the situation with the paramedics and that how they told me that I was having a panic attack 
And um, I told them my chest still really hurt, be, hurted because I was hyperventilating because I had a panic attack earlier and I still had a hard time breathing. So they treated me for my migraine and sent me home that oh evening. Gosh. So the next day on Monday, I finally called my doctor about three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon and told him, talked to a nurse there and told her the situation that the paramedics had come and my, my chest still really hurt and that I was having a hard time breathing. And they told me to immediately go to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and they immediately told me I was, they checked my cardiac enzymes and I was having, a, a, I had a major episode um, and they informed me that I would need an angioplasty. So I went in for the left heart cast to get the angioplasty and um, they found out that the widow maker was a hundred percent blocked. And so was the one next to it. Wow. So they put in, they put in a stint at the widow maker um, and then they, they did angioplasty on the one next to it. It's a miracle you're still here. A day and a half and two trips to the ER. Like, it's a miracle you're still here. It is. I'm here for a purpose. And through this whole situation, I never felt scared. Oh, my God. I knew I would be, I knew I would be okay. I just trusted God that, that, that everything would work out, and it was his plan, and I had to just let it go. So what would you tell our listeners about your life post-transplant? I am living the best life that I could possibly live. I've had an extra 10, 11 years with my children, my family. I'm, I'm excited to be alive. I wake up every day and thank the Lord that I am on the right side of the ground. And I thank the Lord every day for my transplant donor and for his family that I have such a great relationship with them. Well, we are certainly grateful to Deb and to your donor, Jeff, and uh, I, I'm still floored by your story, Jennifer, and I thank you for coming out and being willing to share it. I think people really appreciate hearing the life and death difference that organ donation makes in, in just everyday lives. Yes, it does. And I, I have several times, I will talk to people about organ donation and how important it is to be an organ donor. And I share my story to anybody who wants to hear it because they need to know how important organ donation is. Absolutely. Well, well, we thank you, Jennifer, and wish you only the best. And I can't wait to hear you sing sometime. I think that would be fabulous. Yes, I sing every Sunday at church. Uh, <laughs> and, and is that in Oberlin? No, I go to a church in Lorraine called First Lutheran Evangelical Lutheran Church. And um, our choir director is actually... Um, a professor at Oberlin Conservatory. And we have a beautiful pipe organ in our church and the choir sings during the school year. We're off in the summers, but I, I really enjoy the people I sing with and we've been singing together for about um, 12, 15 years. Oh, wow. How wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you again, Jennifer. It's my honor to talk with you and, and we wish you a long life, long health. And uh, hopefully we'll get to meet in person one day. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. We hope you found today's episode informative and inspirational. 
You know, you can save lives simply by going to lifebanc.org and registering your donation decision. You can catch Let's Talk About Life on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, but you can always find it at lifebank.org. We thank you for listening and we hope you come back next time. And come on, let's talk about life. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk About Life. If you have questions about today's podcast, reach out to us at info at lifebank.org. Take a few minutes to do something heroic and register to be an organ donor by saying yes at lifebank.org. Literally, someone's life is dependent on it.